Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. One of the greatest pleasures in bringing you this podcast is that we get to meet with people with a passion for what they do. This episode is no different, as we're in Baldonnell with the Irish Air Corps, as they celebrate not only 100 years of operation, but especially this week, 10 years of the Emergency Aeromedical Service, EAS. The Emergency Aeromedical Service, resident in Custom Barracks in Athlone, is a joint project between the HSE and the Defence Forces. Air Corps flight crews work alongside National Ambulance Service Advanced Paramedics in a dedicated military helicopter to rapidly transfer critical patients to the most appropriate hospital in the country. The service was initially set up in 2012 for a 12-month trial period. The aim was to assess the level and type of dedicated Helicopter Emergency Medical Service, or HEMS, required in Ireland, in light of recent closures of regional facilities such as Roscommon Hospital. Well, since its inception, it's become a vital asset in critical pre-hospital care and has completed over 3,500 missions. Commandant Oshin McGrath is Officer Commanding 301 Squadron, the Tactical Helicopter Squadron. Yeah, I suppose the first helicopters came into the Air Corps in 1963 and we had um, almost 40 years of search and rescue with air ambulance operations nationally, really. Um, but I think the ES operation, since its kind of inception 2012, has kind of ramped that up to another level, you know, with over 5,000 missions completed in a in 10-year period, would probably almost match the missions that were completed over 40-year period uh, in the time now, mm. in much less capable aircraft and probably a different era of aviation, I guess, um, more modern times now, but um, it's been uh, it's been busy, yeah. yeah. For you as the man in charge, what are your priorities? Safety is the number one. It has to, it has to be, um, you know, we bring in civilian passengers aboard, military aircraft, and everything we do in terms of training, maintenance, uh, be it flight crews, technical crews, has to be done to the highest standards and, and maintain that level of safety. All incidents, um, minor, it happens in aviation, they report it, and then we use those incidents to, to backtrack and make sure that the procedures are adjusted to, to make sure it doesn't happen again. What does it actually take then, by the time somebody's sitting... In the, se- in the command seat of one of these helicopters, what development and training has gone into in for them? Yeah, well, I guess, um, particularly in the command seat, in, at the end of the day, the, the aircraft commander's decision is kind of final. Why we do um, take CRM, which brings everybody's opinion, feeds into the aircraft commander. At the end of the day, it's that person's decision. We generally have guys with the higher uh, end of the helicopter experience. Um, so 
when a pilot comes in from their finishing their wings course on the PC9, they fly uh, the EC135 uh, on their helicopter conversion course. It takes about a, six months to a year, depending on aircraft availability. And usually they consolidate for a year then afterwards. That builds about maybe 250, 300 hours of flying time into them where they go and cut their teeth on their own, uh, fly some kind of fairly basic operations. From there, they usually get um, a co-pilot course then on the 129, and they get maybe three years of sitting with the experienced guys mm. and learn from them and see how they operate and see the decision making process and feed into it kind of I suppose building their own uh, picture of, of how things work and usually after that three years they have enough hours again to go into the Garda Air Support Unit and fly the 135 again as a commander and that again takes a high level of experience to be there they're on their own 24 hour operation daytime, nighttime, two minute response so you need guys to be uh, I suppose on the ball in terms of decision making and usually they stay there for kind of three to five years which firms up their decision making process and builds their experience on their own I suppose without the safety blanket of, of an authority over them and then usually when they finish their uh, time in the Garda Air Sports Unit they come back here as an aircraft commander and that's when they feed straight into the AS system as the aircraft commander and usually you could be looking at guys with nearly 2,000 hours flying at that point which is a lot it's a high end hours and again it can just has to match the risk one of those pilots that Commandant McGrath mentioned going through the training is Lieutenant Colin Delaney, currently a P2 or co-pilot on the 139. We sat into the 139 with Colin and his colleague, Sergeant Phil Byrne, and P1 Captain Jason McDermott, the officer tasked with being responsible for the helicopter operation in Athlone. Colin explained the process that got him to the left-hand seat. My name is Colin Delaney and uh, I'm a P2 on the 139. I suppose most people in, in helis would follow a very similar road. That's, that's well worn at this stage, I suppose. So we start off in the PC-9, um, you get your, 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 your wings off that, and you're either, I suppose you put forward your choice, whether you want to go fixed wing or helis, mm. and the organisation tries its best to accommodate <laughs> which, uh, whichever one you'd like to do. <laughs> is, is there still a certain amount of suspicion amongst fixed wing pilots about heli pilots? Um, I suppose there is. I think it works the other way. They're, they're, they're quite inferior. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose there's a, there's definitely a, hel- a healthy rivalry there as well bet- between uh, between us. But mm. I'm sure there's there's a couple of guys who've gone fixed wing who probably mm. would would only like to to try their hand as well at, at the helicopter flying and, and the mission scope that we we cover as well. <laughs> oh, that's it, uh, but um, so uh, we moved across then to the the one three five. Uh, there was four of us in my class that that went on to it, and uh, we did that. Took about nine months training on the one three five. After that, then we spent uh, the, the bones of a year between our building and experience building before we moved across into the left hand seat or the, the P two or co pilot seat. Then in the one three nine, and from that you'll build operation experience within the one three nine. And from there, after you have uh, adequate experience, I suppose, but f- you'd move down to Athlone then in the the P two role, which. Mm. For the most part, other than supporting the the P1 in the operation of the aircraft, really you're looking at the the planning for for all the ES jobs. I, I was going to ask you about that because and and we should clarify as well because some people will be getting a little confused when you talked about the left seat and the right hand seat because in aeroplanes the captain or the commander sits on the left, but in helis it's the other way around. Yeah, it's the other way around. Uh, there's plenty of stories of why that is, and there doesn't there doesn't seem to be a, a general uh, accepted. Uh, truth of, of why why it was switched. You don't care because when people walk past, they think you're the captain. <laughs> oh, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, do people want to be uh, be be quick now to point out <laughs> who the boss is? Who the boss is? Yeah. yeah. No, I was going to ask you a little bit about that because the division of work uh, in a flight deck, anyway, you know, it's not that you're sitting there just as a spare pair of hands. You have very specific duties to do. Yeah, and I think uh, 
uh, ES probably uh, brings that, I suppose, to the fore even more because it, it is so divided down there because a, a call comes in, for example, and uh, we'll be in the, the mission planning office and a call will come in from the, the National Ambulance Service and whether it's a potential call or it's a, a tasking, what will happen then is we'll go into the planning and the P1, if, if it is a task, the P1 will check the weather yeah. and once they're happy enough that the job can be completed uh, on, a, on a weather standpoint of view, I suppose, and, yeah. and other considerations, they'll walk down to the aircraft, they'll start the aircraft up. So they don't even know what the call is, I suppose, is, is the big difference there as well. So then up above, we'll have myself, the crewman and the advanced paramedic then are looking at the... Picking the PDLZ, which was spoken about before, yeah. yeah. And to be to be fair, we're lucky that in some instances with calls, there already exists a PDLZ quite close, so we can mm. use that one. So it, it cuts down the amount of time that we need. But from I suppose a call coming in to taking off, it really can be uh, brought about by how much complexity there is to the mission. So in, in very mountainous areas, or even in in West Galway, for example, it's quite rocky, so it can be hard to find a, a suitable LZ there that is close enough and if we're lucky enough to have an ambulance on scene before us they can be brought by the ambulance to the helicopter which I suppose makes it easier mm-hmm. um, but go, going back to the, the planning point of view we look at the PDLZ once we're happy then that we have the uh, a PDLZ that will work for us ourselves we'll walk down to the aircraft so the three of us will walk down and uh, we'll go down to the aircraft the aircraft will be already running ready for, t- for takeoff we'll uh, be given the thumbs up I suppose literally a thumbs up from the, the P1 and uh, we'll all hop on board and then the initial heading for the direction we're going in will be given by the crewman to the, the P1 and then we'll go into the pre-takeoff checklist from there and we'll do do our departure and after that point then you're still separated in, in, in some ways because you're, I, myself as the P2 will be putting in the, the lat long coordinates for, for where we have for that PDLZ into our, our uh, FMS or the, the GPS system on the aircraft to, to pick up and then all that separation of the crew initially will all be fused together within a couple of minutes of taking off. Captain McDermott explained more about the EAS 10th anniversary. In 2012, June 2012, a pilot project was set up uh, in the Midlands, um, in a, uh, currently based in Atlone, a uh, custom barracks in Atlone DF installation. So uh, an emergency aeromedical support service, to give it its full term, but we know it more, more locally as EAS. Um, so that was set up in 2012. It was kind of um, set up due to the closure of some of the smaller medical facilities. So in, in that area, it was Roscommon A&E at the time. So there was um, there was a lot of concern about the local people about you know being, uh, the lack of medical, um, medical A&E services in the area. So the, the solution at the time was seen to be um, EAS service. So a helicopter based in a medical installation, uh, or in a military installation, uh, Custom Barracks in Atlone, as a pilot project initially, uh, but now it's, uh, it has, due to a success uh, that, that it has, uh, has seen over the last uh, 10 years now this this month um, it has been made a permanent service and has uh, is actually more a national service now than just for the local people in the midlands uh, around uh, you know the Roscommon uh, Longford West Weed area you know uh, and so typically the decision that a helicopter is used versus an ambulance where does that happen well, it, we're all, it's all coordinated through um, uh, the NEOC, so that's the National Emergency Operations Centre in Tala. So it's, go, it's, it's controlled by the National Ambulance Service. So their call centre, um, they, they have a floor in the, the Rivers Building in Tala. So you have all the dispatchers that take all the 999 calls from all over the country, and they're all, it's, it's very efficient and, and well-run well setup, whereby they're all sitting on one, one floor and they, can, they, have, they have immediate communications. Now, whether it be visually or, or through an intercom system, they can talk, and we have a fairly serious call here. In, in, in a remote area or we have a fairly serious call with uh, you know 
technically or medically demanding call that would that might benefit from the input of a helicopter. So I suppose it's it's really up to them the way they categorise their calls and the way they they have a kind of a, a flow chart, and and once it hits certain criteria, they will decide then um, if it warrants a helicopter. So what they will do is then they'll ring our uh, advanced paramedic that's on duty. So I suppose to take it back again, the 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 crew is the EAS crew is six six people. So you have a pilot, a co-pilot, and a crewman EMT. And then you have the National Ambulance Service, advanced paramedic, and you have two um, two technical staff that also are double up as op staff on the job. So they'll put the, the NEOC then will, uh, if they receive a call or if they identify a call that they think might benefit from a helicopter, what they would do then is they'd ring the advanced paramedic down and he'd look at it then with uh, his medical lens or his medical hat on. And uh, then he'd say, yeah, the weather's good. We have um, we have the fuel. If we, if we get the call airborne, we can. We have full Tetris system, so we have comms with them all the time. And uh, he decides then go or no go. Very often you'll arrive on scene, but there'll already be an ambulance in attendance. So what's the addition that you're bringing to that scenario? Well, uh, Michael, I suppose there's, there's, there's two or three different um, uh, things that we can bring to that. And so um, within the ambulance service, you have different levels or different ranks of uh, medical uh, qualifications and ability, the same as every uh, um, organisation. Uh, and it depends on what um, resources they have to allocate to that call at the time. Our paramedics, our advanced paramedics, they have an ex- what's called an extended scope of practice. So they can, they have been, they have received um, a higher level of training to go onto the helicopter so they can carry a greater quantity and quality of drugs so whether it's for pain relief or sedation or whatever they can they can bring that high level of care so it, it's, it's it really ties in with them um, i suppose the way the, the way that the, the whole medical uh, service in ireland has um, has developed once upon a time it was kind of what they call a scoop and shoot where you just where you just pick someone up from the side of the road yeah, or a field or something and got them and go to a hospital quick yeah. now they focus an awful lot more on, on pre-hospital care is what it's called so a lot of the interventions and a lot of the really important time critical life saving stuff happens in the field in the house at the roadside you know and that's where you know it's time critical and these guys you know they, they're they're highly experienced um, advanced paramedics and they you know they go through a, a, a rigorous selection process to make it as far as the helicopter so they've, they'd, they'd be kind of at the, the top of the pyramid I suppose uh, in, in, in their circle in the National yeah. Ambulance Service and then like really I've never I've never seen I'm sure they do but they're very professional but I've never seen them thrown by anything they ever see yeah. you know yeah. So that's one thing. So the pre-hospital care is one element. The second element then is that if it's in a rural location, then we're sitting here in the 139. Um, um, it's the ideal helicopter for this operation, you know, um, fast, long range. We cruise at 140 knots, but we can land anywhere, you know. I'll, I'll show you in a while. We have uh, a thing called slump pads. Um, so it's where you can spread. You can. It's an attachment for the land gear. And you can uh, spread the weight. Uh, it's like uh, it's like a, a soft feel for soft feel yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 or in the winter time, yeah. or in the summertime, even a boggy area. So there's nowhere really that we can't learn in terms of terrain conditions, you know. Um, so that allows us, allows us to get in close, and then obviously at the receiving facility, we can land in 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 most locations around the country. You talk about the base uh, in Athlone, uh, yeah. but where you're landing obviously is is different. At this stage, you must have fairly well plotted out some good landing spots around Ireland. Yeah, we have. Um, now we we use a we use um, a planning platform called the Health Atlas, and um, uh, you know our colleagues in the Coast Guard and um, 
uh, ICRR will be familiar with that package whereby it's a planning tool that we can bring up a map of Ireland and we can um, we have overlays on it of the ESB wires and stuff like that and uh, so we can do a lot of our planning before we leave but um, the P2 will have a good idea of what we can expect in terms of wires and street view Google Street View so there's a lot of a lot of stuff available widely available but it's all in one nice concise package that leaves his um, uh, planning an awful lot more straightforward um, but yeah we're up to uh, seven and a half thousand PDLZs so a predetermined landing zone around the country so um, that's it's quite an amount you bring up the map of Ireland and it's just like uh, uh, it's 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 uh, dotted all over with, with PDLZs in every county so it is it's quite um, now some of them we would go to scene and, and you know if, if someone has recently built a house uh, on it then we of course we don't land in that field or if there's animals or if there's um, you know at this time of the year you know we, we, do, we regularly use football pitches there the ideal landing site because of size that we know and are familiar with you know but this time of the year now you know football matches and kids out training and so cool camps and all the things that we're familiar with around the country but the good thing about the sports grounds are that every every town and village has uh, has a GAA club or a soccer club or a rugby club you know so that's um, uh, that's a very quantifiable uh, size that we don't have to get too tangled up in worrying about the slope or you know uh, you know pedestrian controls where every, every one of them usually has a has a fence around it you know yeah. The technical crew is also part of the team, ensuring the helicopter is ready for an immediate dispatch. Sergeant Philip Byrne told us more. I'm Sergeant Philip Byrne. I've been here since 2001, so a good long time. I was infantry before that, but uh, yeah, I've been here the days before the 125 and the 129. Alouettes, gazelles, dolphins, squirrels twin engine so good broad range you're mentioning some classic helicopters yeah. there and in yeah. fact I can even yeah. see yeah. an yeah, alloy we have an alloy here yeah. actually yeah. Yeah. yeah so um yeah we kind of worked on them all and then 05 the 125s came 06 the 129s came and since then it's for me it's predominantly uh, 129s since but uh, we would yeah broadly work on them all anyway yeah so we're standing beside one of the helicopters now and, and I suppose because we, people can't see we're mm. going to try and capture uh, for, for people who just just the sheer size of it. I mean, even starting at the rotor, like we're looking at what five blades? Yeah, five bladed main rotor, fully articulated. It's um, it's medium lift. It, it's our workhorse. Like I mean, I think Jason, you can correct me, but I think there's nearly fourteen different roles, fifteen different roles. We like you, you're talking from what we're talking about here, the air islands to yeah. firefighting with the Bambi bucket, troop transports. You were tasked with like seal surveys and the like for, by uh, different agencies and all. So I mean, it's an absolute workhorse the fact that we only have six and the work we get through is phenomenal like the Alouettes themselves had about eight and a half thousand hours by the end of their life after 44 years and we're already up on seven ish thousand hours mm. uh, on some of these airframes already mm. and they've been in since 06 so you, you can see the work they're getting through you know and people often again associate helicopters with massive amounts of maintenance because there's so many moving parts mm. uh, how, how does that plot out so that you have an aircraft ready every day but then obviously you've also got to take it back in for regular yeah, maintenance yeah so like we'd go on flight hours and calendar uh, whichever comes first but generally flight hours we'd be flying a lot so like uh, our first interval would be a 25 hour we call it a 25 hour check it's basically just uh, a larger daily inspection our daily inspection is something like uh, this aircraft we just finished a daily inspection on so pretty much every point of uh, movement on the aircraft every point of uh, flight safety on the aircraft is touched looked at assessed and if it's right in the whole aircraft's ground we signed the aircraft out for a 24 hour period and the aircraft's able to fly mm. uh, for that day uh, but then after that then for 25 of those flight hours it'll come in for a check it's like a larger DI a few checks on the tail uh, measurements and then at different points uh, 100, 200, 300 you know thereafter different uh, calendar times then like you know you have a 6 month a 1 year 12 month inspections that will come up periodically as they come like you know and then generally from the maintenance side we'll try and uh, make sure that they come in 
uh, staggered mm. not all in one lump yeah, you know yeah, now yeah. I mean in practice that can be quite hard as well as uh, you know availability aircraft they're kind of different you know waiting on parts might skew mm. that but uh, yeah generally uh, they come in they're, they're now that we're so many years with them the maintenance is a little bit more fluid from air point of view how do you get this aircraft ready for a day's work depending on like it would, the, the lads the pilots would send down uh, wrecks uh, for what jobs would come the day after or a few days down the line and they'll give us what fuel they need uh, equipment on the inside the job it is time on ramp etc and we'll uh, configure the aircraft to what they need uh, bring it out then fuel it up and be there ready to uh, start the aircraft and um, but down that loan then it's it's different again in, on the EAS um, pretty much a set standards Jason's t- kind of told you we'll come down in the morning have the aircraft ready about an hour before everybody gets there and just uh, have it out for when the, the P1 comes along we'll do the start and if there's any issues crop up then like you know generally we can fix it there and then but if there's anything major the aircraft has to come back here for mm-hmm. major maintenance we can do up to a 25 hour as I was saying earlier down there but everything else after has to be uh, down so here. you've so got all your resources and everything yeah your maintenance planning comes yeah, into yeah. things so yeah. we'll know that's coming so then yeah. we'll schedule uh, aircraft changeover mm-hmm. and you know keep this, so make sure there's no interruption in service at all like, you, know. you mentioned coming two helicopters from infantry but what, what, what made you do that what was the idea I, I always wanted to be in the defence forces from day one like you know and uh, my father was a great salesman so like you know I was mad for the army like you know and he sold it to me that uh, well in the air corps you can you know, do your infantry stuff and then do your uh, uh, your airplane stuff, like you know, which I was interested in. So, no, it was it was great, uh, great decision. Like you know, uh, the opportunities that it opens up to you within the job itself. Like I mean, no more than the lads. You travel all over the world uh, on type courses, on maintenance courses, upskilling. You know, the job itself. You're never in the hangar long. You're either down at loan. You hear jobs here. You could be down in. Cork with the the anti-terrorism stuff. You could be with the navy. You could be with the infantry somewhere firefighting. You know, um, so there's plenty of scope for. It's never usually a normal day. There's never usually consistency in your day unless you're on like a big inspection or something like that. Like, you know, so it's it. Do you enjoy <laughs> flying in them? I do. Well, I do because I know everybody who fixes them. You know, ah, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. I have absolute confidence. In everybody here, like I mean, it's a great bunch of guys. Like you know, and uh, it is something like you know, you know, you have you work in other places and you've seen operations elsewhere and the professionalism and the way things are carried out and the adherence to safety and it's it's second to none like you know and you can it's very evident when you go abroad or you see other operations and you know you take it you throw your eye on things that even as you're passing by say wouldn't do that back home like you know or you know so absolute supreme confidence in the aircraft but more so the personnel i was curious about the idea that uh you know do you feel a slight bit more protective or ownership about it and lend it out to the pilots occasionally absolutely <laughs> no no like it, it is it's a huge combined effort like you know what i mean but uh you're looking at the aircraft like as you said the di every day you're seeing the thing intimately uh you're seeing little things that are either creeping that you know in the next section right we're gonna have to replace that or but like i mean uh they absolutely are um uh, something that you want to look after like you know what i mean and we've had these like these aircraft been with us since 06 as i said so like i mean they're uh they're all you kind of know then after a while and you want to look after them like yeah our visit to baldonnell continues after this short break 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Jason McDermott mentioned earlier the skills of the national ambulance crews that fly with the EAS. Well, Pat Morn has been with the service from the start. As you correctly said, yes, I've been here since uh, June 2012. I was one of the first cohort of uh, six trainee APs at the time. The very new, I suppose, service hadn't really existed within the state um, and fairly short introduction to it too as well. So uh, I suppose from both parties, uh, you know, it got off the ground really quick. Mm. I, I suppose the other thing that people might be fascinated too about is the how the, the, the services that can be offered to somebody even 10 years later. We heard the idea of people being sort of scooped up and brought off to a hospital. Now the intervention happens on on site yes i suppose uh, if we look back i suppose the closure of some of the uh, the local a&es where most ambulances would have taken their patients i.e the nearest emergency department i suppose that changed or or had begun to change uh, as as a, a national policy and um, we had some strategies which kicked off about the same time which are the national pci centers where cardiac patients instead of you know going to the local ADs were transported direct to definitive care and I suppose that was hand in glove with the introduction of Air Corps 112 and helicopter services within the state it allowed us to arrive on scene 
diagnose the patient and at that time we had unique access we could consult with the consultant of the day and seek his advice administer medication and transport these people directly to the PCI centre mm. um, I suppose at that time there was a time issue in that 90 minutes from from diagnosis to door was the prescribed time and I suppose with the 139 at over 300 kilometres an hour mm. this became very achievable so ultimately what you had happen was people that would have not probably reached that window ultimately were transported and received the care and, and, and reaped the benefit from today. And this is a phrase that I think everybody now fairly knows about this golden hour or golden 19 minutes but I'm thinking about you, you know, on standby for a call and your bags are packed. Mm-hmm. What do you have access to and what do you have to bring with you for, for, for a call? So the aircraft uh, as I said 139 is kitted out at this prescribed list. Uh, the essentials obviously wouldn't be a whole pile different from the back of an, an ALS or advanced life care mm. ambulance. So you're talking about defibrillators, suction, you're talking about specific airway equipment, specific ALS drugs, and, and, and that sort of thing, you know, uh, to manage, I suppose, acute trauma or acute medical patients mm. in the field. Mm. So whilst yes we'd love to bring the kitchen sink we're obviously bound by aviation and the max up weight that these aircraft can carry Mm. this is a factor but also the difference I suppose from a road ambulance is that we tend to strip these things out and we put the actual bare minimum in so we carry ones and twos where you know ambulances might carry fives and six so it becomes really a a daily task to make sure first of all that when we operate in the morning that the aircraft is stocked and checked and that ultimately batteries are changed and all that sort of stuff but it's a stripped out kit that you would see in an ambulance with the benefit of some other equipment that is very specific to EES. And the working environment, of course, and when we can hear a, a helicopter going past us at the moment, it's noisy, it's moving, and let's be honest, it's not very spacious. It's spacious enough, but not very spacious. Now, if, if I was a sceptic, I could say this is probably somewhat akin to an ambulance on a, on a rocky road around rural Ireland. Yeah. But what I will say is, you know, coming from specifically medical and the road use into it 10 years ago, there is a transition the aircraft environment I suppose you know you, people see these things on television and it looks you know it's fantastic mm. and it looks so smooth and it's always on a sunny day the reality is aviation in Ireland is very different mm, the right. vast majority of the time it's, it's very right. poor yeah. weather low cloud there's a lot going on in the cockpit but what we tend to find as I suppose specifically from the AP perspective is it's a hostile environment during the summer if it's 30 degrees on the ground it's 40 in the back of the cockpit and um, you know the idea I suppose you know if you're in an ambulance or a car you open a sunroof or open a window that's not a possibility obviously when you're airborne and conversely then during the winter what you'll find is it's there's no in between you know the aircraft is a very effective heater but it's designed to operate when the door closes or is closed so uh, we obviously carry a, a air corps crewman who obviously crews the aircraft into you know the confined areas or into the landing zones once that door opens it's whatever the ambient temperature is probably with five degrees on top of it again so if it's freezing outside it's it's minus degrees inside bad for us but obviously you know conscious of our patients too as well so it can be a challenge we were talking about your experience of the 10 years and uh, and and now you're also going to introduce a colleague to me who's relatively new to the experience hi michael how are you tommy monaghan and i am an advanced paramedic generally based out of galway uh, a very new recruit to the aeromedical service with those fresh new eyes and the perspective of working in this environment, what crossed your mind when you thought, yeah, I've got the job, I'm going to be doing this? Well, I suppose uh, Pat mentioned initially that it came, uh, it's, it was started in 2012 and I would have only been on the road maybe 
two to three years at that stage. So mm-hmm. to see the helicopter service come into use back then, I suppose they would have re- regularly landed in Galway and it would have been a regular pad for them to, to locate to. And uh, to see those guys come in, I have to say, it was like, I don't want to use it really, but there would have been guys you would have really, really looked up to. They would have been the heroes of the service as such. So to further on my own career and then step into those shoes it was like, wow, here's this opportunity. As you can imagine, I took it with both hands. Something I aimed for probably over the last 10 years myself. And for a lot of people who, for example, might be conscious, it might be their first time in a helicopter. Even that, it must be difficult, even with small children, for example. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the the big thing really, I suppose, is they would have ear defenders, uh, protection from the noise. But certainly it's 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 frightening for some patients, particularly elderly, when we're taken off. Uh, the crewman will be doing his visual assessment from the back. He'll have doors open. Uh, patients will often reach out or feel like they're going to fall, you know, and you're trying to reassure them while all this noise is going on. Of course, there's wind blowing in through the doors. They're looking out at their feet and all they can see is a couple of hundred uh, feet of, of height. So I suppose it can be a very anxious time for patients. Um, from the bit of experience I've seen with children, it's, it's, it's a big novelty for them, so long as they're well enough to enjoy it. But uh, not always the case. I've, I've heard they also sometimes go away with a little gift. Oh, that's... Yeah, <laughs> yeah there is a little uh, teddy that they get from on behalf of the Air Corps, um, something that's supplied. But a uh, nice little touch in fairness, something I was unaware of till I was here. Uh, I might even have one at home myself. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, Pat, your recommendations for people, ordinary people, to get some first aid training. Uh, look, ultimately, I suppose, and we touched on it there briefly, I suppose one of the things that, you know, is very easy and readily available within the community is to become either a community first responder or at least receive some basic first aid training. You know, it's 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 a very short period of time in, to, I suppose, reap a huge investment. I mean, with the best will in the world, if we get a phone call for someone who's had a collapse, query cardiac arrest, unless CPR takes place more or less instantly, do you know, that there's a huge percentage loss in the likelihood of recovery. So I appreciate from the public's perspective, it's difficult to do. And the tendency is to stand back in these scenarios with a little bit of training. It will give you the confidence and the encouragement, I suppose, to provide that initial care that's vital at that stage. And, you know, we've often had scenes where there's been a good recovery and, you know, and, and what a confidence boost are, you know, if that doesn't make your day to be able to say that you, you know, you assisted a, a fellow a uh, human being are, are ultimately more responsible for them waking up tomorrow morning. I can't think of anything else I could say, you know, that would be more beneficial. Pat mentioned the Air Corps crewman on board too. Sergeant Dermot Corcoran has that job. Hello, my name is uh, Sergeant Dermot Corcoran. Uh, I'm a helicopter crewman, instructor and rating examiner in 301 Squadron in the Irish Air Corps. Now, we've been meeting a lot of the crews today and that operate, but your function in the helicopter is quite specific. Yeah, so I'm the rear crew, so I'm a crewman first and then I'm also trained as an emergency medical technician and I work closely with the advanced paramedic in the back of the aircraft. Mm. So I have a medical role and I have an aviation role and uh, on a day-to-day basis I have to jump between my aviation role the medical role, sometimes you're in the back and you jump between the two of them. Mm. So I have to stay tuned in to what's going on with the patient and then I might get uh, the pilots coming on the front to update me with weather and what's going on and stuff like that. So we kind of have to have... A left and a hand, in, you know, <laughs> both, 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 both the ears. Putting both camps, exactly, basically, yeah, so yeah, is, yeah, yeah, when yeah. you're doing that. And, and, you know, I would see you and your colleagues uh, actually sometimes wearing a harness there because you're actually, it's sometimes outside the helicopter practically. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of people ask, 
what do we do and why did we stand outside so uh, just this morning I had the new crew course up in the mountains so we were going into literally uh, forest tracks turning circles and the reason we can go in there because the crewman is out and the pilot is in the front he's on the right uh, or on the 139 he's on the right hand side and I stand on the right and the P2 is the pilot monitor and he's on the left so our main job is with the eyes and ears of the pilot so we can go into an area where he can't see the tail he can't see what's underneath the, the aircraft so through patter I'm basically talking him into the, the area. So between myself and the pilot, he has his references, and my job is then. So that's why we stand out there, is we basically are the eyes and then the ears. It's all about the situational awareness. It's a fierce handy parking. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think, yeah, you see the scrapes in my van and stuff, but yeah, basically that's kind of it. Like you have to be very spacious yeah. aware, right. you know, your timing has to be right. Then you have to link in with an air traffic control call with a checklist. So you have to know when to cut in, cut out. Yeah. So you have to tune into the two of them. So on EES, when it goes into like that, when we're on the, the aircraft, when we're coming into approach, we'd be getting updates from scene. But once we go into our landing procedure, our 5S recce, uh, the pilot goes through his three E's, his uh, entry, exit and emergency. It's a sterile cock- cockpit then. Right. So we might have to wait until we get the wheels on to get in touch with the National Ambulance Service again because we're con- we could be going into corner of a field there could be a barn there could be I went over where hens came out of things I've been in places where I got bits of silo drop coming up on me so we always have to be aware of what's going on outside so it goes into a sterile and that's interesting what you talk about this idea of a sterile cockpit that means there's no non-operational conversation at that moment no so all the kind of chat the the chit chat has stopped we go into a pattern we go into our procedures so there's no uh, there's no interference there's no oh we'll have a look at this have a look at that it's a set line down procedure and you don't go off that procedure and then the wheels are down and everyone's in there safe because the most important thing for us is getting there safe. I'm sure some of the pilots have said as well they pick up on they have to do the call cold. So when he finds out what the call is, we just tell him or the advanced paramedic will tell him we're going to Bundoran or we're going to uh, Monin Town. He looks at the weather, he sees that's fine and he's gone. So he makes that, that, that decision. So that's where it starts from there. So how did you end up in this position? Yeah, so we joined the Defence Forces back in way in 2003. Uh, 19 years now so I joined originally to get into the search and rescue side, side of things because I was quite a strong swimmer and stuff uh, my dad was a guard so I kind of had that growing up you know helping people from that side of things yeah. trained as a heavy diesel mechanic then and finished up with that and then the crew course came up so it comes up comes through the, the local order the routine orders and you go for a selection course one of the few units in the defence force that runs a selection course it's a full week have to do an interview so it started off at 75 was whittled down to 23 and 12 was finished and they took on two to start so that's how you get into it so the selection course is quite it's robust and uh, there's a fitness test in it a bleep test in it a dummy drag a rope pull then you have a lot of uh, classroom work you have to learn your patter you have a flying test you have the downwash test which is the hardest thing to pass so you're in the middle of the lake bring the aircraft down over on top of your low level and you just swim out from underneath the downwash uh, jump off the lake then you have a flying test as well so it's a very busy and robust week and then you have a it's called a pool test but it's basically the push it your limits in the pool so you have a pool test as well you also as you say as well as being a crewman you also have paramedic skill as well correct yeah we're emergency medical technicians so when we go on scene to a call whatever the call is we all get into the aircraft after the pilot has started up we'll get our PDLZ we've done all that so then when we get on scene then sometimes we're first on scene and sometimes we are there's a road crew who've gotten there just before so I have to get involved in the medical side of things as well so depending on the nature of the casualty and what's going on so one of the instances was an RTC we went to I basically had to so I'm loading everyone up I had to take the mother of the young boy get her in, in, into the aircraft I have to keep an eye on the six paramedics that are helping 
the uh, param the paramedic on the advanced paramedic on the ground. I have to keep an eye on my aircraft. I have to keep an eye on my two pilots. I have to make sure the two firemen who are cutting the gate the far side can stop. So I have to organise the scene. So you have on-scene management. Then you have to load everyone into the aircraft, get people back away from the aircraft. This is all by the engine and the rotors are still running. Load people up. I have to go then get everyone strapped in, make sure the van's paramedics in. If you have family members, the patient's all right. Confirm with him, we're good to go. Me and the pilot then, they will get into our... Uh, Seekins were taken off. We take off then, we shut the door and um, gone through all that. He'll go back on to, so we have a patient in the back, we go to the cab isolated, then they go back into helping um, the back of the patient. So on that day, we were doing CPO for 25 minutes between myself and the advanced paramedic. I was drawing up drugs, I was um, doing CPO on the patient. You're also trying to keep the parent who's in the back cam. Then we had an agreement when we came into Dublin that he go back doing CPR, I go back to land in the aircraft, we land the aircraft successfully, safely again, go back into our procedures, we unload the patient into the back of the ambulance, then we'll go to the, sometimes I travel to the hospital with the uh, paramedic or sometimes we'll go back to Valdonnell or wherever to get a uh, fuel. I'm curious when friends or relatives ask, what do you do? <laughs> what kind of you know, short version you can give them? Because it sounds quite complicated. It is. You know, we kind of tell them, you know, you're a helicopter winchman or you're a helicopter crewman. Oh, well, what does that do? And then you're trying to describe some of the things we do. And it's like, oh, I didn't realise you did that. Oh, I didn't know you did that. And then, of course, I'm sure the Coast Guard lads get it themselves. Everything's in the Coast Guard. But when you explain what you do for a crewman's role, we're door gunners, we're EMTs, we're general purpose crewmen. We do cargo singing, Bambi ops, um, neonatal transfers, patient transfers, EAS, bog surveys, river surveys, seal surveys, um, a sniper from the aircraft with the special forces, special forces and surgeon, uh, we're door gunners, um, winchmen, we're starting to run a rescue from a course now as well, so you're kind of a, a one-stop shop for everything, so it's, it's definitely interesting and it's busy, so it's enjoyable as well. Sergeant Dermot Corcoran there. Well, let's leave the last word with Commandant Oshin McGrath, the officer commanding 301 Squadron, with 10 years done, what are his hopes and plans for the next 10 years? Well, I think for the future would be to become a much better resourced service in terms of pilots, technicians, new aircraft, an increased base where we are or a, a new base somewhere else that we would have a, a much more permanent structure. You know, where while it's fine and it's a detachment and it works, um, it's still a tent. It's a hangar tent rather than a, a concrete hangar. I'd like to see a purpose-built uh, area for EES, uh, whether that be on a site in the Midlands or whether it be wherever that is. Um, I'm sure somebody higher made that call, but that would be nice. And then to have it fully resourced, you know, have a full roster there. I'd like to see it as a squadron on its own. It falls under 301 Squadron, which already we do with Special Force Operations, International Air Ambulances, we do with firefighting, we do with troop transport, we do with <laughs> Marine Counterterrorism, Naval Ops. And then EES is just this add-on that we have when actually it should be a fully structured squadron with a, a squadron commander, two IC, and, and a bunch of pilots and air crew attached to it, and it should be fully self-sufficient, similar to the air support unit. It's something you said earlier on, you know, about civilians on a military helicopter, but and also then you've the guard, the support unit, and and liaisons with other uh, operations like the national ambulance. I would say safely say that the, the relationship between the departments, be it health and defence, and then the HSE and the national ambulance service and the Air Corps are pretty strong, and, and um, the relationships are good. So. The organisation's recruiting. What would your encouragement be to somebody who thinks that yeah, maybe there is a career in that for me? You'd need to think of it from a two-stream, uh, I suppose, approach. One is the flying, like military aviation, 
it's it's impossible to beat. I won't say it's hard to beat. It's it's unbeatable, really. You don't do this kind of flying in any other organisation. Other organisations will be very specific in one role. You're looking at multi-role pilots. You've got currencies. You could have 10, 12 different currencies to maintain, be it fast roping, be it bambi bucketing, cargo slinging, and all of those things. We do a night vision goggles at night time, so you could have 20 currencies to maintain, which just keeps the, the level of excitement up on the flying side and then equally on the other side is the, the camaraderie the friendships the involvement in sport the support that you get as an individual rather than a pilot uh, is, is incredible so um, yeah, I'd highly highly recommend it I'm looking back at my own career 20 years coming up in September now I'd actually look back and not change any day of it so our thanks to the Irish Air Corps for their help and hospitality this week. We look forward to returning soon to Baldonnell to mark more events as part of Air Corps 100. To get the news first, subscribe now to Squawk 7000 on your favourite podcast platform. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 